0: This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd and this is episode number 62. Today we're back to discuss the issue of border closures and at this time taking a look at how Japan's international students and academics have been affected by the entry bans. Though the government is expected to change its border policies imminently and you can find all the latest on the Japan Times website, up until now, the border closures have had an overwhelmingly negative impact on Japan's international academic body, even as the country tries to position itself on the international stage as a more attractive place to study. Later in the show, we'll hear from master's student Angus Watson all about his experiences coming back to Japan after being stuck outside the country for six months, but first we hear from Rochelle Kopp, who's a regular Japan Times contributor as well as a communications consultant and teacher at Kitakushu University. She'll be telling us how the border closures have impacted international students across Japan. Rochelle Kopp, thank you for joining me today and welcome to Deep Dive.
1: Thanks, I'm glad to be here.
0: Could we begin with you painting us a picture of what your university, Kitakushu University, is like in a normal year, a year that's not affected by the coronavirus?
1: Well, you, and under normal circumstances, the campus is a very vibrant place and um, we have a fairly compact campus. And so there's a lot of people around and they're moving around between classes. In the building where I have my office, on the first floor is our uh, international exchange center. And that's where students are preparing to go abroad, but also the exchange students tend to hang out there a lot And work on projects and and different things together with the Japanese students. So it's, you've kind of got that international atmosphere going there as well.
0: So it normally has a vibrant communal feel. I wonder how it feels this year. In fact, have you been able to go to the campus at all?
1: You know, I seldom go because we've been all asked to work from home as much as possible. And our classes are all online at least this past semester, that's been the case. And so occasionally we'll need to go to the campus for some paperwork matter. And when I go there, it's a complete ghost town. It's, it's really kind of mm. creepy, actually.
0: Yeah. I wonder, how does that make you feel, seeing it so empty and so well, devoid it's of just, that life? Well,
1: you know, the whole city is empty, so it's it's part and parcel of that, but it's it's depressing. Yeah, it definitely feels strange.
0: So how has the coronavirus impacted on your teaching um, at the university? You you, You said your classes have moved online.
1: Right, they've moved online. And we've been asked at our university to do as much as possible asynchronously. So I have one class, my seminar, that I've been doing in primarily live sessions. But my other ones, I've been recording lectures for people or giving them other things to view or read and giving them assignments. And so it's been kind of like a correspondence course with a lot of my students
0: Mm -hmm. that must have been a huge change for you as well just in terms of not being able to interact with students in the same way
1: right oh it's it's um it's terrible frankly because for a lot of the students they're just names on a paper and i i haven't seen them and i haven't talked to them and i don't have a sense for who they are or what they're interested in or or what might be going on with them and um it, it just makes it much more difficult to teach effectively.
0: It just sounds like across the world that it's an incredibly tough time to be in academia right now. I know that globally many universities are facing significant challenges in adapting to this new situation we find ourselves in. But here in Japan, international students have been particularly impacted by the coronavirus and the measures that the country has taken at its borders. We'll get into specifics as we go along. But in the most general sense, how have international students been affected by Japan's entry bans and border restrictions?
1: Well, the timing of the entire coronavirus um, was pretty suboptimal for students because when things really started happening was during the spring break. And so a lot of non-Japanese students had returned to their home countries. Also, a lot of academics who were non-Japanese were outside of the country either on personal travel or taking the opportunity when there were not classes in session to be doing research activities or attending conferences. And so there were a lot of students and academics who were outside of the country. And then when border controls were put in place, they were not able to return to Japan.
0: Mm -hmm. And so that would have been around early April when when the vast majority of people would have been affected by this.
1: Exactly, yes, early April, right? Because for most um, universities, the actual classes would begin more towards the middle of April. So it's a time when people still would have been abroad. And a lot of people got stuck and were not able to re-enter Japan. And that you know persisted for a very, very long time. Also the students who were scheduled to come to Japan to start their studies on April 1st, most of them were not able to come to Japan. And so you had a lot of students who were stuck outside of Japan, Um, particularly with the students under the next scholarship program, the ministry of education scholarship. um, They had specific flights that they had been asked to take. And those Mm -hmm. were all after that April 2nd date.
0: Um, could you flesh out that um, next scholarship problem a little bit more? Because I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this is that you've got a government sponsored scholarship, which is in- meant to encourage international students to come to Japan, and then you've got that clashing with the government of Japan saying international students can, can no longer come here.
1: Right. And you in the next educational scholarships, it's thousands of students every year who get them. So it's a a pretty large program. And, you know, the thing that that really struck me as I talked to a lot of students is that people who are getting scholarships are usually applying for and getting scholarships because they need scholarships. In other words, they're people who don't have a lot of excess funds just laying Mm -hmm, around. mm -hmm. And so for a lot of these students, they had quit jobs. They were preparing to come to Japan in the spring. They weren't able to come to Japan. In many cases, they were able to start taking online classes from their universities. However, often that required them you know, staying up in the middle of the night to do it due to time differences. But due to the terms of the scholarship, their classes were being paid for, but they were not able to receive their stipend for living expenses because they were not physically in Japan.
0: So that's that stipend is tied to actually being and living in Japan.
1: Exactly. And they weren't then they weren't able to make an exception for this situation. So you had a lot of people who had quit jobs to come to Japan. They couldn't come to Japan, but they they have living expenses they can't cover, right? And it's very hard to find some other position on one because it's the pandemic and things have shut down and a lot of you know kind of typical part-time jobs you might just pick up weren't available but also they didn't know when they would be able to come to Japan and so some Mm -hmm. of them thought well maybe I can come in June or maybe I can come in July and so you know you don't want to get into a job and then have to leave it so quickly so a lot of them had you know this extended period of time where They don't have income coming in. And as I said, if you're someone who's getting a scholarship, you're probably someone who doesn't have a lot of spare cash set aside for that purpose.
0: I know you covered several stories of uh, people stuck in this situation for your article and uh, my colleague Magda Sumi, who we spoke to a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, she also wrote some uh, fantastic articles back in at the beginning of June, covering many of these same issues, how people on scholarships were at risk of losing them or or couldn't get these uh, stipends. In your article, you mentioned specifically the story of Edvinus Sidnowskis. Could you tell me a little bit about him and, and his experience trying to come and study in Japan?
1: Certainly. So this is someone whose story you know, should be a really inspiring one, or a, a great sort of symbol for Japan's soft power in this academic area. That when um, Professor Shinya Yamanaka of Kyoto University received the Nobel Prize in 2012, and Venus was you know, a young, um, you know, already in the um, biological or scientific field and was really inspired by the topic of stem cell research and got into it, you know, started to look into it more um, based on all the publicity that was surrounding it and decided that this is what he wanted to pursue. And soon after that, created a goal, I want to go to Japan and I want to study in this lab. He was working towards that goal. He had gotten a master's degree. He was working in a stem cell lab in the UK, and he applied for a research position leading to a PhD at Kyoto University, and he was accepted and was granted this next scholarship. And he had quit his job at the lab in the UK, was preparing to come to Japan when the borders closed, and he wasn't able to, to travel. And for the past several months, he's been taking online language classes that start at 4 a.m. Lithuania time where he is, which is exhausting. He's lost a lot of weight um, because he's not keeping a regular schedule. Mm -hmm, He's mm -hmm. dipping into his savings, um, paying for his living expenses. And right now he has no idea when he's going to be able to come to Japan. And if you're doing research in a stem cell lab, that's not really something you can do remotely. You have to be there in person. And so this is this is very stressful for him. And, and if he doesn't find out soon that he can come to Japan, he might just have to go and get a job and give it all up.
0: Yeah, that's a real tragedy for so many reasons, not just on kind of a personal level for him, but you know Japan should be this place as a modern developed nation who's encouraging of extremely talented people coming here and conducting their research you know stem cell research is something that's going to define the future so for japan to limit itself in that way by you know not letting in those students seems seems a very ill thought through policy
1: well that's the exact thing that he said to me he said this past you know period of months has been time that i haven't been able to be doing stem cell research which is Mm. my thing and you know he, he really emphasizes that you know his goal is to help the world through this research, so he wants to get going with it as quickly as possible.
0: I think at this point it would be good to kind of take a more macro view of the situation and 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 kind of ask the question of how does this all fit into the wider context of Japan's ambition to become a more international place of academia to, to really grow its international student and academic body. So, so what, what was Japan trying to achieve before the coronavirus?
1: So back since the 80s, Japan had had a goal to have more international students. And they had created a goal of having 300,000 by the year 2020. And they had actually um, exceeded that already. And so it's been a major push by Japanese universities Um, in part subsidized by the Japanese government to be internationalizing programs. And so that means to um, make programs more appealing for international students um, by changing either curriculum contents or scheduling and to be letting international students know about these opportunities. And then, of course, there's the government scholarships that we've mentioned as well. Mm -hmm. So this has been a really long time goal of the government and of universities. And if you think about it, there's a lot of good reasons for doing that. I mean, one is, as as everyone's aware, Japan's number of young people is shrinking. And so it's a a smaller and smaller pool of potential students for universities. So if they can have students from abroad, that helps them maintain their viability as institutions. As we were just talking about, having some of the best and brightest coming from around the world to Japan helps enrich Japanese universities and their ability to do research and ability to be connected with global research communities. For undergrads, as well as graduate students, but particularly undergraduates, when you have international students come to Japan, that creates a more cross-cultural and dynamic environment for Japanese students who can have an opportunity to interact with people from other countries even while they're in Japan mm. and to help you know, stimulate their, your thinking and all the good things that diversity does. Yes, And then you know, from a longer term for Japanese society, Japanese companies also are really needing younger workers, new, new, new people to come into the corporate ranks and particularly people with language skills and STEM skills. And your non-Japanese graduates are a really great source of potential employees for companies.
0: And I imagine the competition for such international students who you know, are, are willing to travel abroad, uh, obviously very bright, uh, very talented, can potentially speak multiple languages. There, there must be a lot of competition between um, universities around the world for those students. So it kind of feels like Japan is shooting itself in the foot by... by by like, tarnishing its reputation with such a strict border, border closure for those who are supposed to study here
1: no it, it really does um, and you're right it's a very competitive environment and if Japan gets this reputation which unfortunately I think it, it probably already has of you know you could get locked out mm-hmm. that's not going to make people feel really comfortable about investing their time and money in, in pursuing the education here
0: how has this actually affected the universities because you've got to imagine that the universities are very much against this that they would much prefer to be able to maintain their reputation and and this kind of trend towards a more international student body
1: well you know it's not a good impact on the universities um there have been a few university leaders who have spoken out on this topic, but it's generally been fairly quiet. Hmm. And I and I think part of the challenge from, from the university's point of view is, again, there's no sense of when this will end or there hasn't been a sense of when it will end. And so I think probably the universities are just kind of waiting, hoping it would be resolved quickly, but then it hasn't.
0: Has it put in danger some of the courses that they were running with, with an international student body in mind or the kind of research programs that they were running, hoping to uh, have young PhD students from abroad or, or to have academics come from abroad to, to teach them?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a definite possibility, but we don't have any data yet. Mm-hmm. And so I think what the the real you know numbers want to be looking at is how many people are applying for these programs are they able to fill the seats for their spring 2021 school year and, and 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 then probably even more so the year after that for spring 2022 and so until we see what the actual numbers look like it'll be hard to quantify what the exact impact has been but i, I can't imagine the impact is going to be zero
0: mm. And, and how does Japan compare to other countries? Who Because obviously this is a global issue right now and, and different countries have taken different border measures and different approaches there. So is Japan alone in these kinds of detrimental policies towards students?
1: Well, I think we have to split it into two categories. And so one category is residents and one category is new entries, like people who would be coming in to start school, for example, this fall. Mm-hmm. And so, in this first category, Japan is the only G seven country that is has not been allowing residents to return. And now, starting in, in the beginning of August, there's been you know some people who left before April second have been able to return, um, if you do extra tests um, that aren't required of Japanese. But for a long time, even even those people couldn't return. So that was um, or has been. A, contrast with other g7 countries
0: mm-hmm. and then you have the other group who are the the new arrivals so how, how does japan compare
1: so on the new arrivals there's a little bit more variation
2: mm-hmm. so
1: for this fall um, australia and new zealand are not letting people in to start their school year the um, United States is letting people in as long as they have some in-person classes they'll be attending. South Korea is letting people in, but it's telling them we'd really rather you stay at home and take online.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, whereas Singapore and Taiwan are, are letting people in for the fall. So it's, it's it's kind of a mixed bag on the fall students.
0: Okay. Guys, just like, I mean, really, as, as we speak, it, it dawns on me just how tough a time it is for students around the world right now.
1: Right. I think it's very difficult. I did want to mention just one other thing, though, that I think is a really big difference is that the countries that have said, no, you can't come back for the fall. And the countries that have said, yes, you can come back for the fall already made those statements you know, over a month ago. So students had enough time to plan. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that's really unique about Japan is that those students for the fall are all still on tenterhooks. They don't know whether they're going to be able to come into Japan on schedule. Their schools don't know whether they can come in on schedule. Recently, there has been a letter um, that some of the MAX scholars have received from the educational ministry that um, we're going to be letting you come in and wait for more details, which sounds like good news, but it's still vague and the timing's not clear. So I think the communication has also been really different.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's across the board with Japan. I, I, coming back to the next issue as well, it it does seem mad that there's not more coordination between the Ministry of Education and the the rest of the government on this issue. If it was a private scholarship, I could understand if there was some discrepancy, but you know, this is all one government, and yes, it's a a government is a big organization, but you think there would be some united effort to streamline those kinds of policies across different ministries.
1: I would agree with that, but I think it's not just this case. I think you have another situation of, for example, the foreign ministry, mm. which we can only imagine has been getting tremendous pressure from various countries' embassies. Uh, we've seen statements from the various international chambers of commerce. And you know, those would be directed more at the foreign ministry, to some extent the Ministry of Trade and Industry. And so I'm assuming that people in those industries have got to be aware of the damage this is causing. But again, somehow that message doesn't seem to be getting through to the justice ministry. So it does seem like a coordination issue.
0: So we've seen some small signs of progress in that um, people who left before their countries were added to Entry ban lists have since started being able to return to Japan. Um, And later in the show, we're going to be talking to someone who's done exactly that. But are there any signs of change on the horizon that that you see, or is it really just a waiting game at this point?
1: Well, there was a news um, item from NHK that um, said that the Japanese government is now going to let all residents return. And that they're going to be increasing the number of PCR tests at the airport to 10,000 a day to accommodate that. And that's from the current 500 a day. So that would be a really big increase. So that came out. Again, there wasn't a specific date. It was in Japanese, "Hoshinga um, ga or something like that. So we've, we've strengthened the intention or, you know, it's, it's still not a final decision, but it's signaling a decision. So that seemed like very positive news. And so, again, waiting for confirmation and more details. But it was from NHK, so it was from a reliable source.
2: That
0: was Rochelle Kopp, and my thanks to her for joining me on this week's episode. Since recording that piece last Friday, news has come in that Japan is expected to ease immigration restrictions for foreign students. The situation is developing very quickly though, so for all the latest details, head over to the Japan Times website where my colleague Magdalena Asumi is covering all the latest on the issue. Relevant links are, as always, in the show notes. Joining me now is Angus Watson, a master's student who's been studying at the University of Tokyo, also known as Todai. Since 2019. Angus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've just been able to return to Japan after being stuck outside the country for around six months. But let's start right
2: back at the beginning. When did you leave Japan? So I left, uh, I think it was February the 16th, flew out of Tokyo straight into London, and it was for the winter holidays. So we'd, you know, had my exams at the end of January, and then, um, yeah I was going back to see the family for a kind of an extended period of like a month and a half or so towards the end of March we'd uh you know went on a road trip with some mates up to Scotland and, you know we'd been hearing about coronavirus and it was a big discussion you know in the car like should they be closing this should they be closing that and yeah and I I remember the uh on the Monday as we were driving back that was uh that was when BJ Boris Johnson released <laughs> his big kind of <laughs> his big wartime broadcast you know announcing the uh the lockdown measures and that this was going to be something pretty serious. And we were you know, we were all sitting there in dead silence, you know, thinking, wow, this is this is like a something we'll remember. So when you left
0: Japan in mid February, were you thinking about the coronavirus at all? It obviously made its way into the news by then, but we hadn't yet seen the effects of it spread across Europe and the rest of the world.
2: No, I think I think back then it was still you know it was still at that point where people were taking pictures with corona beers, and it, <laughs> okay. it was kind of like you know like this thing like our oh, coronavirus you know um but it no it definitely wasn't it hadn't become that kind of worldwide scale i think that uh the, you know it, it went on to become it was still very much kind of localized in in Asia and you know we were hearing about this cruise ship off uh, off the coast of Japan yeah the off-
0: diamond princess exactly
2: yeah, yeah. and um it, it was something you never really thought that would. You know, enter like the UK and kind of like Western Europe and stuff. It it still seems quite alien in that sense.
0: So, when you left in February, did you have a flight booked back to Japan?
2: Yeah, I had a flight booked back for uh, uh, March the thirty first.
0: So, you were supposed to come back before the border restrictions were or came into force at the beginning of April.
2: Yes, yes, I was meant to come back before then, but it was it kind of. I got diagnosed with glandular fever. Um, so, you know, I wasn't feeling great and it just kind of made sense for that time being to like stay at home, you know, kind of recuperate, uh, you know, just lie around the house, have my mum like feed me meals and, <laughs> you know, just kind of be like a lemon on the sofa, like yeah, watching yeah, anime.
0: Yeah. yeah. Lucky it wasn't coronavirus. Um, okay. So you didn't board that flight on March 31st, then the entry restrictions came into place. Mm. Um, were you immediately aware of what was going on and that suddenly your return to Japan was impossible?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I was, I knew it was happening, but, uh, you know, this kind of, like, I, I was in denial somewhat, okay. yeah. Um, you were kind I think, of thinking it would be resolved
0: pretty quickly. Yeah, actually. I was
2: thinking it would be resolved, not that it would be this, like, extended process, you know, that's still, like, going on as we speak. And then, yeah, and it just kind of, you know, got to that point eventually where you do, like, you know, accept, yeah, this isn't going to, it's not normal times. I'm not going to be, like, going back and, like, resuming uh, my life there.
0: So what's happened to your studies in that time?
2: <laughs> so it was, I I was starting my second year of my master's programme. So I was writing my thesis, which, you know, was actually quite a good thing to be doing abroad. It's mm. quite, it's something you can do very easily remotely. It's a lot of kind of independent self-study. But I was taking classes at this, a couple classes at the same time. And so yeah, pretty, they were very really
0: brutal time difference between yeah, like so, eight hours between.
2: Yeah. So there was a four hour Four hour class at 6am on a Monday morning, um, which was quite, quite intense. You know, there was lots of cups of coffee, like being drunk during that. I do remember, yeah, they were all conducted via Zoom. And on the first session, I logged on and, and the professor came up on screen. He was going through the lecture slides. I was, you know, kind of there working and there's a break halfway through. And when the break happened, it kind of came out into gallery view. I thought, I'll just have a look at, like, everyone else. Well, I saw that it was only me who had my video camera on. <laughs> everyone else was just their kind of, like, single name. And I was there, like, oh, my God. Like, and then there's the big question, like, do you just kind of, like, Don't struggle make- on through, or do you, like, accept defeat? And, like, of course, you've just got to, like, embrace it and, <laughs> and then silently turn it off at the next class. Were yeah. <laughs> you we getting much
0: support from... University of Tokyo du- during this? Like, wh- and how was the communication with them?
2: You know, talking to the uh, GAIA, which is the international kind of student's office, they were, you know, they were helpful. But, you know, at the same time, I, I kind of like think back to what my term was like last year. And it was pretty intense with, you know, core courses and stuff. And, you know, I don't realistically think that I would have been able to do that same term during like coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, the office were very much of the opinion, you know, there's, there's no kind of exception that we can make. Like you can either completely come out of the term and delay your graduation for another year. Or, you know, you just kind of, like, get on with it. Which is quite, like, a tough... Uh, Decision to be for yeah, to. because you don't really want to be pushing your studies back for another year. Uh, so, yeah, so I kind of... I, I feel for, like, students who would have been in that first year position, you know, having to kind of keep up with these like core courses. Yeah,
0: for sure. And like all the people who are studying things that can't be done remotely as Mm -hmm. well. If you're doing any kind of science stuff that needs a lab or complicated machinery, then, um, you know, we've heard quite a lot of stories from people who've just been stuck and unable to pursue their research. Mm. Did you have any scholarship or anything like that? And did, did the coronavirus and not being able to be in Japan affect that at all?
2: Yeah. So I had a I I had a scholarship which was granted by the Japanese government and, I, I was talking to the international office at, uh, at, at Toldai about it, but they um, you have to sign off monthly. And so they kind of said, yeah, because you're not in Japan, you're not able going to be able to receive the uh, the scholarship, essentially. Um, so is
0: this a mixed scholarship? It's or? not a
2: mixed scholarship, it's a um, JASO um, okay. scholarship. So it's a kind of monthly stipend that just gets put into the account. And, you know, that's kind of again I'm in quite a privileged position in that I was living with my parents you know food was kind of paid for and everything and it's not something you know I rely on I rely on it whilst I'm in Japan but in the UK you know I don't have need for it so again you kind of like think of students who you know aren't in that kind of same position who can't go in and you know sign off for the scholarship
0: Mm. how are you feeling about it all, reflecting back on that time
2: I think the overriding thing is uh and actually uh, someone I got to know well who uh who I think was in a similar situation. She got stuck in the UK and she was living in Delhi. You know, we were kind of chatting about it, and you know, it is just just this. Your your life is somewhere else, but you are you know stuck in um, in a different country. Yeah, I mean, it's quite yeah. it's quite hard to kind of like adjust to. I think being in one place, but ultimately, like everything that's kind of like important and what's going on in your life at the moment is you know halfway across the world.
0: Talk me through the process of coming back. In, in reality, how was it?
2: Uh, it was actually relatively straightforward, I, I think. The embassy in the UK were very good in just keeping, you know, posting updates on their site. I think if you weren't checking the website, you wouldn't you wouldn't have known. But, you know, logging onto the site, they're constantly updating, you mm-hmm. know, who, who's now allowed This is in. the
0: Japan embassy in London.
2: Yeah, the Japan embassy in London. And... You know, immediately they kind of said, okay, right, you need to book an appointment at the embassy and, um, you know, come in, we'll chat to you. You need to show us your re-entry permit that you left Japan before mm. the, the re-entry ban. After that, it was just a series of coronavirus tests, you know, having a kind of swab stuck up your nose and flailing, kind of crying and stuff <laughs> as they wiggle it around. Um and then, um, and then, yeah, and it happened very quickly. It was kind of you know a week long period where you know it was just embassy coronavirus test, and then flight back to Japan. And then I think it w- what's kind of great is you know you go through this whole process at the airport where they're testing you for corona. And this you, is it in Japan once you landed in Japan in Haneda, and uh, I think it was very walking into this coronavirus test booth and you know kind of like reading the instructions which is just an amazingly japanese process it's quite nice to be inducted to you know they've got these <laughs> these photos of lemons and sour pickles uh, on the wall to make you salivate so you can spit into this tube and stuff and you you're just kind of there thinking yeah this is it i'm back
0: and how was your experience dealing with the immigration officials was that just as normal or was there any welcome back to japan we're sorry we kept you out for 6 months type behavior
2: no, there was, it was just very, you know, it was just a couple hours of just not saying much, you know, waiting where you were told to wait. I actually, well, what was nice was when I, when I'd gone through the whole thing, someone had taken my luggage and put it on a trolley for me. Oh, yeah. Man. So I, I kind of took that as the the Japanese government's gesture of like, goodwill. <laughs> well, welcome back. We, we'll, we'll do, do your luggage. Yeah. This yeah. well, okay. um, so,
0: so is that your general feeling that you are just glad to be back or... Because you know, one of the big discussions about this whole ban, not just for students, but for all kind of residents and the international community in general, is that it's basically trashed Japan's reputation when it comes mm. to living here and and any idea that it really accommodates people who aren't Japanese. Mm. So has your perception of Japan changed as, as a result of being
2: um, stuck I, out? Uh, not really, no. I think Japan has always kind of been like that you know it has always been notoriously hard for you know foreigners to like make their way you know even now I was applying to apartments and you know just getting emails back saying you know you can't we, we don't take foreign like residents and stuff I can't speak for other other kind of uh, people living in Japan who aren't students basically but I think more kind of more, more of a conversation between like universities and the Japanese government would have been better mm-hmm. because you know your, your life at university is something that ultimately can't really be conducted you know with a like nine hour eight hour time difference and so yeah so you are kind of like you would like the government to you know account for like your status as a student what what i enjoy about life in japan isn't it it rotates around life outside of the government and just you know the general kind of like feeling of like being here and stuff i think you know for some for a more longer-term resident who's really you know you know made a proper life here. Uh, then that might be slightly different. You know, they, I think those kind of feelings of you're not being like welcomed into the society completely, uh, you know, that can be quite tough to take. But no, for me, it hasn't really detracted from my kind of like overall appreciation and my happiness to be back, basically.
0: That was Angus Watson and the link to an accompanying article by him about his return to Japan can be found in the episode notes. That's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive, but this story is evolving all the time, as I said earlier. For updates, please do head to the Japan Times website where my colleagues are covering all the latest on the issue. Thanks to my guests this week, Rochelle Kopp and Angus Watson. If you like Deep Dive, rate it, review it, and share it with a friend. Until next time, thanks as always for listening, and posukare-sama.